This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Pierre Delancey. How can a library change the world? How can an art library change the art school or the gallery? Or even an art practice? In the recent book, Shelf Documents, artists, writers, curators, teachers and librarians reflect on how they can use the beloved library as a source of inspiration and a field of action. In thinking about diversity in collections, the publication proposes art libraries as sites of intersubjective communication. Shelf Documents is rooted in a collaborative book acquisition project initiated by the artist Heider Hendricks at the Royal Academy of Fine Arts in Antwerp in which her group integrated over 200 new titles in art libraries as a way to fill gaps, to amplify voices, and to seek out the self-initiated or the overlooked. I am now joined by the three instigators of the project and the editors of the book, Heide Hendricks, Elizabeth Haynes, and Joey Tang. Hello. Welcome to you all. Heide, I want to start with you, and I want to start with a project that doesn't formally belong to shelf documents, but I think beautifully situates what it is that you are trying to do here. Um, I know that in 2017 you participated in the first ever edition of the Kathmandu Triennale in Nepal with a project called On Some of the Birds of Nepal. And in this project you found yourself tackling some of the conditions of the art library. Thank you, Pierre, for the the question. Um, Yeah, uh, it was a a project about bringing a book or a folder of drawings that were made in the 19th century in um, Kathmandu back to the place of its origin. So these these drawings, they are now housed in the collection of the Natural History Museum in London. And since they left Kathmandu in the 19th century, they never have um, returned to their place of, of origin. And um, the project basically tried out or 
developed the procedure to bring them back and this this meant like a lot of negotiation and between the institutions but also to set up a location in Kathmandu that would meet the expectation of the Natural History Museum in London so it was about like bringing two places in connection that couldn't be more different from from each other or in mm. um, how do you say that in infrastructural terms i guess so maybe just to bring up the the obvious bit of background here is that nepal was under colonial under british colonial rule in the 19th century and of course the drawings were produced under the instruction of the colonial administration yeah, so the the drawings were commissioned by Brian Hodgins, who was the commissioner to Kathmandu at that time, and he collected a number of draftsmen around um, around himself. He did extensive research about every aspect of life in Kathmandu or in Nepal at um, at that point um, in time, a place that was very difficult to 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 reach and kind of out of out of place i think the travel time was more or less 3 months to between london and and kathmandu um so these were first documents of uh, the natural life in in this time the birds um at at that time and he imagined to publish actually a book from from the drawings like like the birds um, of uh, america the Audubon publication that was had just been published um, a little bit before, and that was his kind of goal. But he never managed to to collect the money or resources for, mm. for that. And this way, the the drawings ended up in the in the Natural History Museum, but had kind of um, never reached the moment of multiplication of being printed and put into a form of of um, of book. Mm. Liz. If I remember rightly, Haida, Brian Hodgson's did some of the drawings himself, but he also he didn't he didn't he didn't do any of them. He didn't do any drawings. Oh, okay. But mm. the but the people who did the drawings were Nepali artists. Yeah, and that's important to 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 say. Like the, um, the friends of Hodgson's um, who visited him, they basically introduced the way of um, of representational drawing style as it um, it is used and in that sense like the the moment of producing these drawings is um, it's a shift in the way of like these draftsmen were working before in a religious context they were trained so to say to follow um, the interests of fortune mm, thank you i thought this would be a good introduction to the broader project because it illustrates both the scope and the ambitions of the library practice, which begins with the project in Kathmandu. At the same time, the project is incredibly intimate and gestural, uh, perhaps standing in contrast to a certain extent with the constant pressure on producing decolonizing initiatives that we see in today's art institutions. Well, let's turn to the book itself now. Um, the book is a site where we find an equally subtle combination of ideas. So the book is at a certain level a reader, in as much as it has contribution from the three of you, invited academics, um, also a couple of contributions from other artists. Um, but the book is also a manifesto, and it's also, to a certain degree, an artist's book. I will maybe talk a little bit about the 
what that means as an artifact later on. So in many ways, it's an object designed to be housed and be used in an art library. Liz, I want to turn to you to ask about this format. Sure. I mean, I think maybe it might make sense if I if I read the very first part of the introduction, actually. Certainly. If the book starts like this. So this is this is the beginning of the introduction to the book where we're talking to the reader. We are holding this book. It fits in our hands and in our jacket pocket and in our bags. It doesn't fit very well on the shelf in the art library. It's too small. It gets lost between and behind monographs that stick out of the shelves. We also don't know where to put it. It isn't a reader. It isn't an artist book. It isn't documentation of a project or a catalogue. It might recall a pamphlet, a roadmap or a recipe book, but it doesn't really tell you where to go or what to do. But we like this size. We want to stake a claim in a tradition of books that don't quite fit and that gently destabilize the parameters of a library and the design of bookshelves as much as the process of indexing. We want a book that gets misshelved all the time. When we're hunting for this book, we get to notice gaps on the shelves and those contours in the library's mass and weight take in a sculptural quality and confer a particular la landscape of origins, languages, labor, processes and transactions that make these books possible. We start to map, map that landscape more closely, but also to think about the journeys in that landscape. How do we travel from one book to another? Who are the guides? What gestures produce echoes and ripples as we learn from the books and each other? So that's that's the introduction, and I think that sort of sets out the principle that we didn't really want to take an authoritative position, and I guess that's why the book the, the book is a sort of made up of this kind of quite hybrid uh, set of of contributions. <laughs> we didn't really want to take an authoritative position, but we wanted to kind of um, invite readers to share with us some of the explorations, uh, some of the discoveries, and some of the kind of thoughts that came out of uh, a project um, which Haida led at the. Um, well, Academy of Arts in Antwerp, a research project in which Joey and I and a number of other contributors were part of. In that project, we were exploring something about the nature of the of, of the academic library in the in the academy, and I think um, Haida can probably speak more about that in a minute. And and Joey was also um, uh, exploring the, the the landscape, as it were, of the library in Columbus, Ohio, where he was uh, working at the time. And the book, the book kind of groups together those those, those different kinds of thoughts and um, experiences from the project. So the book comes in four parts. We think about the institutions which house art libraries. We explore a little bit the library itself um, as as a space, but also particularly as something that needs um, maintenance, that needs care, that needs labour. Mm -hmm. um, we think about the book and how the physicality of books shape their use and and their kind of circulation and the experience of reading them. And then particularly, I think one of the things that came up really through the project, rather than something we could have imagined before, was the idea of listening and and how and how you might listen with and mm -hmm. through books. And finally, we then think about the body of the of the reader. So the bodies and difference in bodies being the one of the kind of key ways in which colonial ideas are disseminated. And therefore, like thinking about the body as a site of reading being one of the ways in which you need to think about undoing, I guess, some of the kind of colonial processes in the library. So that's that's how the book is that's how the book is structured. But that but that's but again, all of the all the contributions within those categories are quite sort of looping and explorative. Mm, that meandering nature of the book certainly seems appropriate for it. And I want to mention for listeners that the book is punctuated by dozens and dozens of drawings by Haider, which 
in and of themselves would have made a beautiful publication. Well, let's not start moving through the hierarchy of ideas that you introduced a moment ago, Liz. We opened with the institution, and of course we already met the museum through Haider's work with the Natural History Museum. But of course the institution could also mean the art school, which is usually the place that houses the library. But we also have to think about the library as an institution within an institution. So Joey, maybe this is a good moment to turn to you as someone who has been engaged in all three, if, I, if I'm right, all three versions of these institutions. Sure. Um, well, I thought maybe I'll say a little bit about how Heide and I worked together and how she invited me into the fold of this project. Around 2017, um, Heide, who's an artist and a teacher at the Royal Academy of Art in Antwerp, as a, as a teacher in an art school where there's a library, meaning an institution within an institution, there are often, let's say, gaps in knowledge or gaps in art historical lineage um, that persists in, in the institution. What I find and what seems to echo with Heide's experience is that rather than only motored by protocols, there are also this subject subjective uh, experiences and people who are shaping the library as it is. Heidi got a chance to, to imagine a project within the context of the art school to, uh, in a way, fill in the gaps, um, so to speak, gaps where artists and thinkers of color, queer artists, women and women identify artists, and teachers uh, are missing on the, on the shelves of the art library. Um, so she started this really beautiful project of uh, working to fill these gaps. And I, as someone who began to work within uh, an art institution as, at an art center, at an art school in, in the middle of, in the Midwest of the U.S., um, also find it to be a, a space where I love to engage with. Um, there were mm -hmm. obviously gaps in the library where, um, in the art school where I worked at, um, maybe not to the same, not in the same way as, as Heidi's library, um, as the, maybe the conversations in, in the U.S. Uh, about diversity of the library runs on a kind of different mm -hmm. track, let's say. But I was happy, very happy to to think with Heidi, and she invited me to to suggest books for her project. And when I started working in Ohio, um, I invited the library that was in my school to mirror those um, titles that we were introducing to to Antwerp, also in um, in in Columbus, Ohio. Um, what we found was there was this sort of a doubling of the library that. That was taking place. Some books were yeah. were already in the library where I worked at, um, in art school where I was working at. Some were not, so we were able to kind of map the differences and the similarities between the two libraries. That's the physical manifest manifestation of the project. It's really to bring books into the library, and alongside Heidi programmed a series of events and talks in the library itself in in Antwerp, and I did the same in Ohio, but in a different way. Uh, one was through 
construction of a bookshelf to display the books um, in the library. So making a kind of different shelving system to demarcate mm -hmm. and introduce these, these new books, but also to uh, invite Haide to be an artist in the gallery uh, at the art school. Yes, it's uh, it happens that in in the building in um, Columbus, the library is exactly beneath the gallery space, so they're like stacked on top of each other, and um, this was something that I think is fitting perfectly the the thought of the of, of the project that basically the um, practice is coming out of a. Background, so to say, and like it is practice is informed, and so one we touched up earlier on it, or um, Pierre, you mentioned um, the, the the drawings um, that are mm -hmm. inserted into the book, and these um, these drawings were basically the contribution to which the exhibition, and we hung them in the um, exhibition space, like. In also in form of mirroring or um, in into the space suspended from the ceiling so that they would take on the position of the shelf um, the level below so kind of the structure would be extended into the library structure would be in a modest way extended mm. into the exhibition space that was one intervention and the second one was con to connect the um, the the exhibition space with the library through a hole in the ceiling and uh, having a rope um, that was like the similar rope that was also used for suspending the drawings from the ceiling um, to have it run from the ceiling of the exhibition space to the ground of the library space and the rope would then be um, manipulated in a way that threads would be inserted or taken out mm. so it would become thicker and thinner mm -hmm. and um, the rope was basically also a way of taking the line of the drawing into the third di dimension mm -hmm. Well, so let this be a warning to librarians not to invite artists to their institutions lest they start drilling holes in floors and ceilings. The way you describe the project, I understand it as a subtle intervention in, in the institution. And of course, with, with things that are as static as libraries, this is about as radical a gesture as one can make. And of course, there's a long history of artists trying to make interventions in the collections of art institutions like museums. So within all of this, I have a couple of questions. One relates to the relevance of the library um, as a place for collecting knowledge, given that we, of course, live at a time where knowledge is produced, stored, catalogued and exchanged in all sorts of different places. And within that also the question of the relevance of an art library or a library that is cited specifically within an art school as a very rarefied kind of environment becomes relevant. And my second question is to do with identifying the gaps and deciding how one fills them. So I think that the um the question about, I mean, thinking about why art libraries, why is it, why would you want to intervene in an art library? Um, 
although there are lots of other ways in which people access knowledge about art, um, the, the physical library itself remains a key way that, um, that people involved in the pedagogy of art can point students in different directions. It's a place where students go to find inspiration and it's a place where, where those who are teaching art send students to, to, to investigate further, to learn more about contemporary art. And obviously it's far from being an exclusive way in which they do that learning. But the, but the heart of that physical space and those physical books in an art school or in an art, um, in an art contemporary art centre means that it has, it has it continues to have an importance and, and people continue to invest in buying books for those spaces. So that the people who run those spaces obviously feel that that, that is still a kind of relevant part of the pedagogy. And I think that mm. what, we were, what we were particularly interested in was not only what is missing from the library, but then about about some of the kind of processes and practices in the library. So how, so what does it mean if students go to look for a book in a library? So first of all, how do they find the books? But then yeah. what actually happens from, for, for a young artist who's developing their practice, they go and encounter another artist, an established artist through the library, as it were. They make that encounter. They, make, they meet another artist in the library virtually through the, through the traces of that artist's work in, in a book. So what does that what does that actually mean, and how and how does that kind of dialogue or or, or legacy how how does that work how how does it shape a young artist's mm-hmm. practice? So I think whilst there's been quite a lot of attention to the content of libraries, what is or isn't there, I think that what what we became interested in was not only what is there, but how is that content used? What how does it shape future generations of of art practitioners? And then the other side of what of what we became interested in through the project, I think, is really about the care of books. So books not only sort of magically and eternally being there, but books as kind of fragile, dusty, used or unused objects that take up space that require labor to, to be maintained and to be made accessible. And I think that this, I think to go back to Haida's project in Nepal, this is one of the things that was, 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 which was very beautifully demonstrated by that project. So all of the books, all of the older books in the Natural History Museum Mm -hmm. in London are kept in special, you know, um, rarefied, air-conditioned circumstances in order to preserve them, their longevity. So the book of drawings that made its way from London to Nepal um, in London was kept at, I think, I would imagine usually at something like 18 degrees Celsius. That's constantly at 18 mm. degrees Celsius in order to stop it from um, from eroding. Now, it was almost impossible. It, the, the project almost fell at the final hurdle when it reached Nepal because it was basically impossible to, for, for, for the building and for the, in, and for the institutions involved in the Biennale to create a room that what that maintained that book at 18 degrees Celsius. So obviously the book itself is one thing, but the kind of preservation of the book and how that book might travel or be in other spaces yeah. and the, the the amount of energy one might imagine to, to produce an 18 degree uh, 18 degree Celsius room in, in, in Kathmandu is, is very different. So thinking about um, our books not only as sort of uh, eternal objects mm. that have kind of, that, that sort of bestow knowledge or abstractly kind of um, transfer knowledge, but thinking about the way, the actual practical ways in which young artists encounter them, but also and, and more established artists encounter them, but also the the very the very mm. physical f- forms of of maintenance that 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 books demand, and that pr- reproducing that legacy requires a lot of activity, which normally goes unnoticed. The sort of uh, yeah, the kind of invisible labor of libraries, I guess. 
Hmm. This continuity is an interesting image, though I guess either it isn't as though you were walking up and down the aisles between the bookshelves and simply spotted a glaring gap. I think um, it was basically by noticing that um, artists I would refer to wouldn't be uh, represented in the in the library. So it was a very um, very simple simple. Mm-hmm. Um, process and the tool i think um that that was used within the project was by um asking the advisors into the project to have a wider realm of expertise knowledge and interest that would open the the perspective in view and i think what is very important to Acknowledge is like gaps will always remain. Like there is a library cannot be complete. So it is it is a process that is never finished and that need to be that needs to be continued. And I think one of the goals of the project was basically to raise the awareness around the gaps. And that is kind of mm-hmm. the hope to for the future to create space that is more inclusive. Yeah. Mm. So I think I think it might, might be interesting just to see the significance of, of this work, or rather maybe it's symbolic significance, is to send the listeners to second-shelf.org, which has a listing of all the books that you have introduced into your partner libraries, which numbers, the highest number I can see is 224. So you've done a fair bit of this. But what strikes me there is quite a lot of the names of the artists that you you include in this in this collections are actually quite quite well known yeah. I, mean, I think that the surprise is that mm-hmm. you had to as an artist intervention go and ask libraries to to go and stock books about or buy blue chip artists represented yes, by international galleries and represented in biennials so in as much as, as when I was reading Shelf Documents, the book, your book about the project first, I was expecting kind of much more, say, much more diverse, much more international, much more marginal kind of list of names mm. that I wouldn't know. Here I'm, I'm slightly sp- split. What, what do we say about institutions that have, under the auspices of the decolonial project, and I now say this now almost in inverted commas because that's a hackneyed word by now, Mm-hmm. And a word that's been appropriated by institutions to kind of wash their hands of any real thought process. Is the reality not that our institutions are so behind their own stated goals from from 30 years ago as opposed to now? Mm-hmm. That how, how, how do we address this? Joey, do you want to talk about this maybe a little bit? Because you've been curating, presumably, with an, an understanding that, that all these artists are already part of a canon. Yeah, but we also did it's to document the books that we have uh, introduced into the library in Antwerp and the library in Columbus. So there are actually some books that are already in mm-hmm. the Columbus shelves and some that are not in Antwerp. So that gives you a kind of sense of the, the discrepancies there. I think for me, I was really addressing addressing this idea of the classroom to library mm-hmm. pipeline that seems to be one of the ways in which the library source their their list. And I am keenly aware of how some of these artists that are quite uh, well-known are missing in the library. And I think 
another way to maybe look at this too it's um maybe think about who gets published as well um obviously hmm. the route to have a book published on an artist's work necessitates a certain kind of career trajectory and so we are hitting ourselves in into your question in a way hmm. uh um how do how do we address that question um and i think this was uh our way of situating ourselves into the library i have to say the way that we chose the the books for my on my side were very much influenced by the the artists who were also showing at the gallery in mm -hmm. the current season or the artists who are in the proximity and the artists who are in Columbus, Ohio. So there were representations and kind of a mirror of the programming as well. As you, I think, go down the list, there's a slight kind of interpolation of lesser known artists. Um, I think what it reveals a little bit, this process, and this is addressed a little bit by one of your contributors, David Senior, in, in his essay in the book, is that there was a question of what it means to be included in the first place. And, and if I was going to be difficult with you, I would ask you whether being included in this pseudo-universal library, this pseudo-universal all-encompassing institution is the best answer for anyone who had previously been included, because you have this, this enlightened model of bringing everything together under one roof, which, which I think is well described by the lot of the birds from Kathmandu, where... You know, you take pieces of knowledge from around the world and, and put them in a single volume and you, you, you close them up in an 18-degree room. They're never to be able to circulate or fly again, except for the, <laughs> this one occasion. So I've, I think that the fundamental question I have is, at which point you decide that the institution is not the place to, to bring the bits of knowledge when they are missing? What alternatives are there? What else could you have done with the things that are missing? And, and where are they now, frankly? If they're not in the library, there's somewhere there. There's somewhere out there. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. So I think one of the ways in which I began to think about it as we were working through the project was that was, was to, to situate basically the library more precisely in the, in the sense that a library should be serving a community of readers and that each library will have a different community of readers. 
and that community will be constituted i mean in the large part by the students and the and the staff of any institution mm. who are using it um or in the case of a library within an art, a contemporary art center the visitors of the of the art center but thinking about the kind of very specifically about the geography of that readership and and the kind of makeup of that readership and the potential readership so not only the people who are already using the library but the people who c- could be users of the library so rather than thinking about the library as a, as a kind of place a general place, a sort of abstract universal collection of knowledge, to think about it as something which serves a community. And I think that's what David Senior is mm. leaning towards in thinking about what um, what the library for his art center will be doing in, in that context. And, and, and when Joey was describing the ways in which he was um, interested in documenting something about the local scene and the, and the work that was ongoing in um, in CCAD in Columbus. I think those those were both ways of kind of localizing or situating the library more specifically. So thinking about the ways in which within an institution books are selected. So we we as a group started mm-hmm. to think, I guess, in the in initially about what our ideal set of books would be in a library. What kind of library would we like to um, would we like to borrow from? What would we like to see there? But as we were worked through the project, we were beginning to think about the fact that most but most art libraries are made up of the kind of ideal sets of books of of a kind of um eclectic mix of members of staff but without any kind of organizing or consultation and so the, it's 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 generally very often the loudest voice that gets the books on the list or the things that are most easy or the things that come to hand most obviously um and so I guess what we started to think about for ourselves, but we didn't um, actually kind of go as far as introducing as a as a as a codified protocol, was what mm-hmm. kinds of processes within institutions lead to the selection of books, and can those institutions adapt their processes so that they are better suited to the communities that they want to they want to serve? I think that was where we that's where we were headed. Haida, hmm. I think I have a slightly different version of this question for you. Um, which might take us back towards your practice. So towards the end of the book, I realized that a big chunk of your drawing practice consists of copying out the work of other artists. And while, of course, there is a way to read this as a certain homage, there's also a way to think about what you're doing here as a certain librarianship, um, quite literally in a medieval way, copying out existing sources. Yeah, I, I think for me this process of redrawing is really a process of, of understanding. And in the very first place when I started that, it was also of, it was had not this attention. It was a practice that came out of a moment of not knowing what to do and finding myself in a place I couldn't orientate myself. So and um I think that it became this project of inscription and this body of work is really something that is related to the project it's only there that i framed it and it is definitely a very subjective collection and it's it documents a, a, a continuation of an of an interest or like a change of interest also and it is really a way of since the in in the structure of the book we end up with a chapter on the body i think this process of of drawing is also a very like it's a bodily experience it's leading the reading process through the hand onto the paper again and there are thinner and thicker lines in the drawings yeah well i'm very, very rudimentary comment. I found it incredibly useful that at the very beginning of the book, you reproduce a few drawings by Hannah Darboven. 
I mean, they're essentially lined paper with tiny, tiny marks in pencil, which um, I'm going to show you now on camera. have been fantastic for taking notes. So I'm afraid, Hi, that I've defaced many of your drawings in the book. <laughs> That's beautiful. I'm writing, writing all over them, and I'm trying to read my, read my questions out of them. Um, yeah, it's a writing exercise, like her yeah. drawings is a set of writing exercises. Yeah. yeah. But for those listeners who, who don't know the practice of Hannah de Boven, a lot of her work consists of essentially like writing out letters or numbers, one after another, page after page after page. It's also a universalist project. Ah, yeah, exactly. Well, we've got the duodecimal system sooner or later. Let's let's shift scales a little bit um, and go back to the conversation about drawings. Liz, you have an essay in the book that considers the role of a reader as a private or a public figure or as an autonomous figure. And I think that's a, that's a super interesting way to think about the history of librarianships. And I'm interested in particular in the political dimension that, that, that reading and circulating information has. Of course, we have this idea that you know, knowledge, knowledge leads to change, knowledge leads to liberation and institution, as, as we, we've experienced, having been through university-like institutions, all, all four of us, that doesn't necessarily follow. But the evolution of a reader as a as a figure, I think, is an incredibly interesting. Yes, this is this is an idea again that emerged for me through our conversations around the project. So through thinking about who might access these new books. So if we fill in the gaps, as we was, as we've been saying, if we filled in the gaps in the library, who who is going to be using them and how are they used? So historically there have been a number of different kinds of more common ways of reading. So I guess typically now, if we imagine someone reading, um, even though we know probably most reading is done on an electronic device, if you said, oh, someone is, someone is going to read a book, you, mm. you would imagine them sitting somewhere on their own um, with the book open in their hands, kind of looking down at it. That's still the kind of iconic way of, of, of understanding reading a book. But that's quite a specific way of, of understanding what reading might be, which isn't hasn't been common through history or in, in different contexts. So in medieval times, mm -hmm. um, silent reading is something that became a practice. So previously, uh, people would, would always read out loud. So everything yeah. that was read would be verbalized. Um, and you can tell um, the moment that reading became a silent individual practice through the different architectures of reading spaces. So gradually people could sit closer to each other, as it were, and still and still engage in private study because they weren't verbalizing the things and interfering with each other's um, others' practices through sound. In, in other moments in time, people haven't had access to books as individuals. So they've had to do various kinds of forms of communal reading practices, mostly reading out loud to groups which are, is still common in, in, in different forms of kind of reading groups today. And in different parts of the world, access to different books is still very difficult. And in fact, um, earlier on, Pierre, you were talking about the ways mm -hmm. in which New Book Network allows people access to ideas contained in books, which are otherwise locked into um, academic publishing um, formats, which are incredibly expensive and otherwise Indeed. inaccessible. So that the ways in which sort of the knowledge of books is used and read and shared is, is, is really diverse. And I, and I wanted to kind of think about whether in the future or whether a, a decolonized library, I guess, would continue to be predominated by the practice of, of, of silent individual reading or whether we might imagine new ways of experiencing the relationship between our books and our bodies in a library space. Hmm. I think the pandemic has to an extent been an interesting moment that has made visible 
some of the reading group activity as all our life has moved online, uh, one of the things I remember noticing is that someone has set up a reading group that was then turned into a podcast for reading A Thousand Plateaus by Deleuze and Guattari. And of course, we, we can imagine how that, how that went along. <laughs> but Liz, you, you also interview um, in the book Samia Malik, who is the instigator of Women of Colour Index, which is a reading group based at Goldsmiths University of, of London. So I wanted to, to think about further about the collective act of reading, but also thinking that I've got all three of you editors and contributors to the book, also about the act of collective writing. So, to a certain extent, it's a question of efficiency. You know, to bring a revolution of buying 300 books to a library still requires a committee. But I'm interested fundamentally in the way that you set about capturing that process as, as a book in itself. So one of the one of the elements of the book is an interview or a discussion I had with with Samia Malik. Um, so Samia, yeah, is the is one of the co-founders of the Women of Color Index Reading Group, and the Women of Color Index is a, a collection of of documentation about the work of women of color, which is held at Goldsmiths um, in the Women's Library at Goldsmith University in London. And that was undertaken, I think, starting in the in the nineteen nineties, a, a collection just 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 any way of kind of bringing together mm-hmm. newspaper clippings, any kind of review magazines, which uh, which documented the work of of, of a specific set of, of women of color working in the UK at that time. So that was a sort of snapshot in time. And now that that archive is being used by the mm-hmm. Women of Color Index Reading Group um, as a means of kind of sharing and exploring that particular set of work which remained extremely underrepresented in kind of large-scale gallery contexts or or, or, or or exhibition contexts or indeed publication contexts so it's women's practices that were were largely that were largely kind of under the radar um, although many of them are now being more rediscovered so the women of color index reading group was a way so what what they do is they um, each time have a, a short article about an artist who was working in that period which is which is read aloud and then and then discussed in different ways in in kind of pairs and in groups. I participate in one of their reading sessions, and they they organise them in such a way that it they pay close attention to differences in voice and differences in ways that people want to read aloud or experiencing reading. Uh, so there's an attention to different kinds of w- ways of engaging with with reading. And then there's the, and then of course they're dealing with the subject matter and and offer people an opportunity or a space to reflect on the difficulties of being or producing or participating in the art world coming from um, coming from i guess a a position of not being a middle class white man predominantly but also i mean also different kinds of different kinds of ways of feeling excluded from art production and from art context so they they've been doing that for some time and i think one of the one of the one of the remarkable things about that work has been the ways in which speaking out loud some of the kind of printed statements adds adds a kind of particular sort of power to them so women who are talking about in the 1990s in interviews about the experience of of racism of 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 direct racism and the ways in which they've indirectly mm-hmm. been um been dismissed or ignored in, as as artists speaking some of those Speaking some of those claims out loud and hearing them in in a space with other people really shifts the emphasis or the kind of experience of of, of that of that moment. I think 
And it also, of course, engenders ways of, of discussion about what has and hasn't changed in that time. A lot has, a lot of things have improved. Samia in that interview reflects on her experience as first an art student and then an art lecturer in different arts institutions in London. So there's, there's been a lot of positive change, but there's also a lot that, I mean, as, as everybody understands, that, that really still needs to be done. So the kind of collectivity in that, I think, is, is beautiful, but Samia also points out can be very difficult, like the, the holding that as a collective space, holding it as a space which is safe for discussion and reflection around, around racism and exclusion and gender. It's something which has brought a lot to the founders of that group, but it's also something which has been extremely challenging. I think collective work is hard. I think that's something which comes out of that, of that interview. Hmm. I think for us, um, in terms of working together, I think one of the things that we that was very enjoyable for me personally about about working on on shelf documents was the opportunity to work in ways that felt quite slow. So at the time of at the time of producing this book, I was also working as an academic historian, so working at the University of Bristol as a, as a history lecturer and researcher. And the sorts of ways in which books are produced usually as a if you're an academic historian the ways you would normally write a book uh, are quite time pressured and also quite um there's a, there's a mm. very strong format you know where you're going before you start you have to basically write the yeah. book before you even start writing the book in order to sell it to the publisher who then commissions the book that you might mm. want to write um and very little can kind of change or evolve in that process yeah. and fundamentally it's quite a boring way I mean, it's not. I mean, it's just an extremely boring way to write and to and to be uh, a researcher and, and to be a person in the world. So one of the things <laughs> that was really enjoyable for me about working on shelf documents was that um, the nature of the book that we were producing was very open and changed a lot as we were working on it. But also the process of collective writing. So the one of the ways in which we decided what the book was was through writing the introduction, and we wrote that together very slowly <laughs> we we met we met once a week for several hours uh for a couple of months i guess right that's uh, that's more or less how how it worked and um we had an open we had an open document which we which we sort of discussed and sometimes we were working at the same time and sometimes we were sort of working in a more linear way um but really what we understood of the project and what we understood that we wanted the book to eventually be came through this kind of long, um, very inefficient by most standards process. We wrote much more than we used, and we learnt an awful lot along the way. It was a, it was a, it was an unusual process mm. of writing for me, but one that I found extremely satisfying. I learned so much more from my collaborators working in that way. I would get mm, beautiful, Joey. I want to come back to you because this is something you address. In your essay, you talk about your approach to curating through the prism of what you call slow programming. And I think the, the contradiction that I, I find in, in what you're saying is that you set out to achieve some counter-institutional aims, essentially. You're trying to get under the skin of the institution, subvert some collection policies, and do something that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And you talk about the, the slowness both in the book, both in the project, but also in your programming in general, Joey, you, you, you put value in being slow and pausing and, and not rushing to deliver solutions. Yet, if we think about the institution, whether it's the institution of the library, of the university, or even the institution of the state, 
or in a cultural institution in an abstract sense, like one of the first things we associate with these formations is the slowness. I mean, there's nothing more snail-like than a university in which you know you want to repair a broken chair you need to form a committee <laughs> how does this approach square up with this revolutionary <laughs> or radical idea that's the contradiction i'm i'm, I'm slightly bemused by but but also intrigued by um no that's that's a really good question i think i talked about the labor of this way of working the slowness not meaning there's no work put into it, but the attention and the attentiveness towards all that is happening and the continuation of things in motion. I think maybe maybe that is in itself the revelation of the contradiction of what slow really is. Um, mm -hmm. What are you talking about? The kind of things that takes forever to do. And, and I think what Heidi and I tried to do too, we didn't sign anything between the two schools. And we were very sure if we would be asked to do is to properly do an agreement because it's a collaboration between two institutions. It's, there's a bunch of books being bought. There's a book being produced. Um, and I think we really want it just so slightly go between these gaps that actually do exist for the good of the project. But I also want to maybe go back to what, what Liz was just saying as well. Putting this book together was also the beginning of the pandemic. So it was a moment when books were not even circulating in mm. anywhere in the world. Most parts of the world, they were not meant to be circulated. People were not allowed in the libraries. And so we were really writing at the moment when books were like standing still. Um, production was halted, though it was a very slow process. It, it was the pandemic that allowed us to be able to kind of connect in those, those ways, which, um, which really gave the book a kind of attention otherwise wouldn't have. Mm, when talking about the care that it takes to produce an object like this, even though you said in the introduction that this is not an artist book that we're looking at, um, it is clear that you have paid a lot of attention and care to its appearance. Um, and indeed, you have a section with one of the contributors, Sarah de Bond, which focuses on typography. And if I understand correctly, you even had the font for the book especially designed. No, it was not designed for the book, but it was um, Sarah de Bond suggested like throughout the project, also for the website, um, like the use of, of Lelo. And um, it is like her approach is to, to, um, to look behind also how things are constructed. And um, in that sense to say like, okay, I use only fonts that are designed by women. Mm -hmm. um, that's her concept. So, and next to Lelo, there's Diotima uh, used in the book, and that's um, designed by Gudrun Zapf. And I think, like, this is also like for the slow process, Sarah was already involved into the project, like, yeah, in 2019 when we were starting to work on the Ex Libris and the website. And then she, so to say, followed the whole process. I think had a good idea of um, what we what we wanted, and so um, there's there's another form of organic collaboration so so to say and she um also 
yeah, suggested like the use of the paper, which like you have in the first edition, this very like um, almost um, yeah, the, the texture of the of the cover has a certain tactility, mm -hmm. and um, inside the the papers, it's it's a recycled paper, and it is a, a paper that is not where the text section is printed on, which has a certain um, irregularity inside, mm -hmm. so it's not so even. All these um, details really like form this this um, this particular object that can travel <laughs> through the um, through through the shelves, the bags, and but also through the hands. And hmm. wow, it's a beautiful object. Liz, you want to come in? So again, to kind of return to your question about the value of libraries or what libraries even mean or can do in, in the kind of process of decolonization or, or thinking about the ridiculously uneven and, and difficult legacies that they all carry. Thinking about the communities that use libraries, one of the things that's difficult about an academic um, library and particularly an art school library is that most of the users of that library are in very precarious positions. So all of us, whilst producing this book, were working in, um, in, te in temporary contracts in this kind of project-based way. And the students themselves are, are also, you know, they're, they're, they're also a kind of temporary community. They're constantly kind of being, they're turning over and new students mm -hmm. are arriving. So it's, it, in some ways, it's, it's the library, we don't want the library to be a kind of universal thing. We don't want it to be eternal, but it does nonetheless, has for all of us provided a sort of um, a kind of place of haven in a in for whilst we were living precarious lives so whilst we don't want a kind of universally and and kind of eternal institution that that kind of dominates or dictates what we do or don't how we how we see our lives or or, or how we understand contemporary art the permanence of the library has provided a refuge for all of us and that's something which Haida's drawings speak to is her is her refuge in different kinds of libraries using libraries as a place of, of refuge in precarious situations all of us found, um, I think, some kind of comfort in this project through our own moments of precarity during the production of the book and during the project itself. Mm. But it's also something which is mentioned by Laura Larson. I, I think many artists have the experience of working in libraries because they're warm, they're comfortable. You have think you have lots of things to look at around you, and they're open in, in you know they're open in hours which are often longer than many other kinds of similar spaces. Yeah. So you can they are they are places which provide physically a kind of safe haven for artists to work and I think that's that's something which is often apart from apart from the content the books on the shelves I think that's something to really important really important to remember about art libraries is that they are a place where artists work that's I think a key thing hmm. interesting well I'm going to put my vote for turning up the temperature in the British library where I spent much of my time <laughs> it's overly overly over conditioned Right. Yeah, I always I always shiver in in in, in libraries. I have, yeah. I have to take extra clothes. Yeah. <laughs> thank you all for joining me, and thank you for your beautiful work. Thank you, Pierre, for having us. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Pierre. Goodbye. The list of books involved in a second shelf project is available on second-shelf.org. Shelf Document, Art Libraries Practice, edited by Heide Hendricks, Joey Tang and Elizabeth Haynes, with contributions by Melanie Loel, Laura Larson, Elisa Sanchez, 
and many others, as well as drawings by Heit Hendricks, is published by B-Books. I'm Pierre and the editor is Marshall Poe. Thanks for listening, and join us next time. Thank you.